It's great to be part of a congregation that enjoys singing, congregational singing, and I'm especially thankful for some people that can hit those high notes <laughs> that I can't come anywhere close to. Uh, are we returning today to the little book of First uh, John? We're approaching the end of this book, and we'll look at verses 6 and 17 of First John chapter Five, we're finding that the apostles packing a lot into these uh, closing verses, and I pray that the Lord will help us to see in these verses anew the uh, wonderful grace that we uh, just sang about. Our text this morning, then, from God's Word, First John chapter five, verses sixteen and seventeen. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Upon first reading, this uh, text includes some aspects that are uh, difficult to understand. And I would suggest that when you encounter a text like this, that the most helpful approach is going to be look, to look first for what is clear, uh, what, what is easily discernible, what, what seems to be the main focus of the text, and, and then turn to those things which are a little more complicated, a little more difficult to understand. And so that's what I want to do uh, with this text this morning. Uh, the, the passage that we're looking at, this, this brief few sentences, focus clearly on, on, on two main verbs. Uh, here's one, one place where your English grammar can come in handy. <laughs> Uh, students used to ask me when I was teaching uh, English literature and grammar, why are we studying grammar? Why are we learning all this stuff and diagramming sentences and everything? And I said, for one reason, so that you can understand God's word better. <laughs> and so let's look at the two main verbs uh, grammatically that are centered on here. And that is uh, the verb, uh, he shall ask. And the verb, he shall give. Those are the two main verbs. We have an introductory clause that comes first. That's that, uh, that's that if clause. Okay, But the main, main clause focuses on those two verbs. They're, they're, they're both future tense, you notice. Know, a simple future tense. He shall ask. He shall give. Now, now some of you are wondering why I'm saying he shall give when your Bible says God shall give there. Well, the, the text actually has he shall give. But they're assuming, and rightly I think, that that pronoun he shall give is referring to God. And so to make that clear to readers so they don't miss that, some translations say God shall give there. But literally we've just got those two words. He shall ask he shall give, both in the future tense, but, but you can tell already they convey different ideas, don't they? When Paul, I mean, when John says, he shall ask here, that's an implied imperative. 
that's an implied command, right? He's saying, if this, if you see this, then you shall do this. Well, that shall do conveys the idea of, of an imperative, right? I mean, it's not a, it's, it's not an in-your-face imperative. It, he's not, you know, really coming at us hard with this imperative, but clearly it is an imperative. If this condition exists, this is what you're expected to do. So that's what's, what's in view there. If this condition exists, you are expected to ask. To ask. And he's using the same verb there for ask that he has used in the previous verses when he's been talking about prayer. So we could even translate this. If this condition exists, you shall pray. You shall ask. It's clearly an asking that is directed to God. And we'll see more specifically what the asking is. Okay, does that make sense? So then he, we've got this condition. This is what we do. And then the next main verb, he shall give. Well, that too is in the future, but it conveys more than just the future, doesn't it? He, he's saying, when you ask, okay, when that happens, when you pray, God will give. God will give. You ask, he gives. You receive your asking, to use the literal expression that he uses earlier in this, in this passage. In this book, I mean. See the connection there? That connection is vital to your understanding this text. Here's John's main point. In the condition that I am describing here, you are to ask God. And you are to ask him with the full expectation that he is going to hear and answer you. This is a wonderful, there's a wonderful promise here. That there is a promise that is absolutely precious to the people of God. I hope you see it as precious to you. And precious in the sense of being both on the receiving and the acting side of what's described here. But get that firmly in your mind. You're being given a command here. When a certain condition exists, you are to ask. And you're being given a promise. When you ask, God will hear. So we have two different subjects for these two verbs. But interestingly... We have one direct object, okay? And you've probably already noticed that that object is life. He shall ask for life, and he shall be given life. And that's been a key word in this little letter, hasn't it? Uh, a wonderful word in, the, in this little letter. You might want to go back and, and read this letter later and notice the development of this idea of life in, in John's letter. I'll just mention a couple right from the very beginning. Remember he says right at the beginning of his letter, we have proclaimed to you, we have proclaimed to you eternal life, the eternal life. You have heard from us the message of eternal life. Isn't that isn't that a wonderful reminder in a world which is often seems bent on death? 
you've heard. It's been proclaimed to you life, and, and you've been called to experience that life. And so he develops that, that theme in the letter, and now he's coming back to it at the end of the letter. That which has been proclaimed to you should be the object of your prayer. Eternal life has been proclaimed to you. And so ask for it. Pray for it. And God will give it. That's the wonderful sort of heart of this passage here. Now, now it's clear the condition as well. So let's move to the condition of prayer. Of this particular prayer, I should say. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death... That's the condition. You see a brother sinning. Now, now, he's used that term brother a number of times, hasn't he? And he's used the term children. You see, he's addressed the recipients of this letter. So it's clear he's talking about the, the congregational body there, the church there that he's speaking to as, as a unit. He's, he's using this imagery, which we see all the way through Scripture, of the church is family, okay? And so you are members of a family together and you see someone else, a fellow believer who is sinning. Now, now again, we wanna take this the way he takes it. He's using this term brother in a generic sense to mean anyone in the fellowship there. Obviously, you can't see someone's heart. Okay, you, you don't know. You, you can't look at people and say, well, this person is a member of the family of God. That person is not. This person will come to faith at some point. This person won't. Okay, So, so John's not, not asking you to figure out who are Christians. That's not your job. It, your job is not to decide who is saved and who is lost. But your job in this context here is among those who are your visible fellow believers. In this context, they're worshiping together, they're living together, okay? They know one another, okay? And in that context, and you can easily translate that into your context, right? Context, those people that, that you interact with as professing believers here in this congregation. We could even exp expand it beyond that as well, right? If you see someone who, as far as, as external circumstances are concerned, is a believer sinning, this is what you are to do. Boy, that's a good reminder for us, isn't it? Because what's our natural tendency? Be honest. What's your natural tendency when you see, see somebody else that goes by the name of Christian sinning? Isn't your first response to try to find somebody to tell about that? <laughs> you know, how tempted we are. How tempted we are. Bad news travels fast, doesn't it? And, and John's saying... You're not to be like that. You're not to be like that. When you see someone who professes to be a believer, someone who's, who is your brother or sister, as far as you know, in the faith, and you see them sinning, your first impulse, your first impulse should be prayer. 
not to gossip about it with somebody else, not to not to let somebody else know, you know. Oh, I, I ha usually we do that in the form of a prayer request, though, right? I, I hope you'll pray for so and so. Do you know what I saw them doing the other? <laughs> uh, that that's not what he's talking about here. Okay, he's not talking about correction either. I mean that there's a place for correction. Okay, if I I'm doing wrong, particularly if I've wronged you, if I've sinned against you, you, you need to call me on that. You need to exercise a correcting influence there. But, but number one on your, on your to-do list, John's saying, when you see someone sinning in the body of Christ, you have to pray for them. To pray that God would grant them life. Life. Isn't it interesting that he makes that the request? Maybe, maybe we're to, to take by that that, that that in a sense, when, when, we, when we sin as believers, we're, we're allowing a foothold for that which is death. That, that, that death, in a sense, is having an influence on us when we sin. You know, one thing that John for sure does in this text is take sin seriously, right? He takes sin seriously. There's an unusual distinction that he makes here between sin that is not to death and sin that is to death. Most translations put a verb in those expressions so that mine, for instance, uses the verb lead here. There is a sin that leads to death. There's a sin that does not lead to death. But literally, the text just says there's a sin to death. There's a sin not to death. And what are we to make of that? Uh, well, one thing for sure we don't want to do is, is think that this is going to allow us to somehow minimize some sins. Sin that does not lead to death, well, that's no big deal. You don't have to worry about that. In fact, if you notice here, that's exactly the sin we're supposed to pray for. Okay? That He says the sin does not lead to death, but you are to pray for that person. Because sin is serious. Sin is serious. He's made a point of saying, telling us how serious it is in this letter, hasn't he? He's used, for instance, the metaphor of darkness. Remember how often he's talked about darkness? And he said, you know, if, well, let's, let's go back to chapter, the early chapters of the book and, and notice what he says here. He says in his first teaching regarding believing and following Christ, he says that whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he has walked. And in fact, if you're not walking in that way, you're walking in darkness, Sin engenders darkness. And there's the implication of, uh, of not knowing either where you are or where you're going. Sin blinds you. Sin blinds you. And a believer's sin can blind them temporarily to reality. They could begin to think that black is white and white is black. They can begin to, to minimize their selfishness and, and choose wrongly. So, so 
John is not minimizing sin by any stretch of the imagination here. Uh, he's saying our first response should be to pray, to pray that life would be restored to that believer who has gone into sin. Now, what is the, what is the sin that leads to death then? The sin to death. Well, that's not perfectly clear in the text, and I'm not going to say it is. I'm not going to say that you should think exactly this about this text. Okay? There's a, there's a lot of a lot of disagreement about exactly what is meant here. Uh, some people think that John is referring to the situation he's talked about earlier in the letter, where he said that, well, there are some who were in your church. They were members. They were part of your congregation. And now they have denied that Jesus is the Son of God, and they've left. And he says of those people, well, they left because they weren't ever one of you. They, they, they seem to be, but they weren't one of you in reality. And so some people think he's, he's talking about that. And, and perhaps they extrapolate and say, well, he's talking about the sin of apostasy, of publicly professing faith in Christ and then denying him. And... and and, and certainly apostasy, publicly denying the faith, is a grievous sin, a terrible sin. But I think we'd hesitate to say that it's the unforgivable sin. We see examples to the contrary. One of the most notable is, is King Manasseh in Judah. Came to the throne at 12, promptly left the way of his godly father, led the nation into terrible Practices of sin that the prophet says later are worse even than the pagan nations around them. He, he, he leads for over 50 years the nation in a downward spiral. Terrible consequences for the nation. And yet we're told near the end of his life, he repents. He humbles himself, the text tells us. He humbles himself and comes to a true knowledge of the Lord as God. And God hears him. So, so we don't want to go from our text to saying, well, the, those who drift away from the faith or those who repudiate the faith, uh, well, they're hopeless. That's not what's being said here. Some people look at this text and say, well, well maybe Jesus, John is thinking about what Jesus said when the Pharisees were saying that he did his miracles by the power of the devil. And, and when they did that, remember that they, they can't say he doesn't do the miracles. I mean, everybody sees them, so they can't deny that they happen. And so they say, well, he, he does them, he cast out demons by the power of demons. That's how he does it. And remember, Jesus warns them at that point. He says there's an unforgivable sin, and that is to ascribe the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of demons. You're, you're on dangerous ground, here he's saying to the Pharisees. It's one thing to speak against me, he says, but to speak against what the Spirit is doing through me and to say that's the devil's work, you're on very, very dangerous ground there. And, and certainly we want to agree that that is indeed a terrible state to be in. But it's unclear that there's a connection with our text today. And it's also unclear exactly 
how we would see people doing that sin today since, since Jesus is no longer performing great signs in his earthly ministry. Uh, so it's unclear exactly what he means by this. It, it may be that, that John's simply indicating that because of the seriousness of sin, there's a point, there's a point in a person's life and that sin inevitably is heading toward his death. Now again, we can't know that. Okay. We can't see somebody else's heart. So perhaps that's why, why John is, is, really, is really careful in his words here, isn't he? Notice he doesn't say, don't pray for that. Right? Look again at what he says here. He says, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. He stops short of saying, don't pray. It's very rare that you see that. The only instance I could find of that in my own research is, is Jeremiah, in the time when judgment had been prophesied against Judah. And the Lord said, They've passed the point of no return. Okay, they're claiming to be my people. They're coming to church, they're coming to the temple, and they're worshiping and saying, oh, we're okay. And then they're leaving that and they're worshiping pagan idols. They're lying, they're stealing. He says that they've passed the point of no return. And he literally says to Jeremiah, don't pray for this people anymore. Jeremiah has been interceding for the nation, praying for repentance and deliverance from the judgment that's going to come. And, John, and God says, don't pray anymore. Judgment is decreed. It's going to come. Your prophecy now is the certainty of judgment. So, so, so John is not going that far here. He's not saying, don't pray. So what, how are we to read this? What are we to take away from this? Well, I think we want to go back to that main point that he's been making. We, we may be unclear about exactly what he means by the sin that leads to death, sin to death. But we do see a note of hope there when he says there is sin that does not lead to death. Sin is death-dealing. Okay, and a believer's sin, to an extent, allows death to work in them. You know that from your own experience. You've seen sin kill relationships. You've seen sin kill joy and peace in your life. So sin is death-dealing, but for the believer, sin does not have the last word. Life does. Remember... John has proclaimed the message of life. And though we may sin, we will sin. In fact, he says at the beginning of the letter, doesn't he? He says we are going to sin. And that is serious. And that brings death, bringing consequences to us at times. But it doesn't have the last word. And that's why then John says, pray for life. Pray for life. Are you praying for your brothers and sisters, Christ? 
we depend upon one another's prayers. It's implied by what John's saying here, isn't it? God will give life to his people. He will bring restoration to his people as their fellow Christians pray for them, intercede for God, intercede with God for them. God will work through the prayers of his people to bring healing and restoration. You want to be in on the great work of salvation that God is doing. Here's a wonderful way to do it, isn't it? You can ask, and you can know that God will hear and answer that prayer. It's a wonderful opportunity for ministry that every person in the church can take part of. I mean, there are a lot of things that we as individuals can't do in the church. Not all of us have the same gifts. And, and health and incapacity can limit what we can do. We can always pray. Now, my mother was such a good example to me in that. Her little body wore out. She was crippled. She was in pain continually. But the, the more incapacitated she got, the more she prayed. <laughs> we can all do that, right? It, the most busy of us can do that as well. I had a good friend who was a pastor of a church, and he was pastoring while he was working at a secular job, and, and he prayed for his congregation on his commute to work when he was walking to work. And everybody can do this. And as we do this, John says, we become part of God's ministry to his church, his ministry of life. And just a word in closing, what is, what is going to be the result? How is that life going to manifest itself? Well, we know that from this gospel too, don't we? Remember, John says, confession is the way to life. If we confess our sins, he says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what the answer to this prayer is going to look like. It's going to look like people being moved to repent and confess their sins and find in Christ the forgiveness for those sins. Isn't that a wonderful thing to pray for? To pray that someone would, would be freed from that bondage of sin that they, that they seem to be laboring under. That, that they would be drawn out of the darkness into the light. That they would be given health instead of illness. That they would be given freedom instead of slavery to sin. You know, it, it, this is a wonderful thing, as I said earlier, both to be on the giving and receiving end of. To, have, to know that there are others praying for us when we sin. That we will be drawn to the Lord in repentance and confession. And know that, that glorious restoration of fellowship with, with God and with one another. And, and on the other hand, giving, having the glorious ministry of praying for one another. That, that others would receive that, that blessing of confession and repentance. Let's uh, ask the Lord to help us to do that. Heavenly Father, we are as we are as it is 
often been said, a restless, anxious people, and much of that anxiety and restlessness comes from, from unresolved sin. We, we've allowed other things to crowd into our life and to rob us of the peace and joy that we have in you. So help us, Lord, to enter into your rest through, through repenting and confessing of our sins and casting ourselves wholly upon your grace as we observe this, the Lord's Supper in a few moments, I pray that there would be a renewal on our parts of, of our devotion to you, that, that we would come to you with confessing hearts and receive, even as we receive these elements, the, the wonderful gift of forgiveness and grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. And enable us then, Lord, to be to be used by you uh, to pray for others so that us too have that joy of forgiveness and, and coming into fellowship with you. Uh, be pleased to do this, Lord, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.